In Michigan, the New York Times reports, black people make up 14% of the population, but 40% of the deaths. In Wisconsin, black people are 7% of the population, but 33% of the deaths. In Mississippi, black people are 38% of the population, but 61% of the deaths. And so it goes pretty much everywhere we're seeing COVID around the country. Hello, welcome to today's COVID-19 law briefing exploring race and bias um, in the COVID-19 legal response. This briefing is brought to you by Public Health Law Watch, supported by the George Consortium of Health Law Professors and the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple Law School. I'm Scott Burris, director of that center, and I'm here today with Professor Dana Matthew. In her last weeks at the University of Virginia Law School, as she transitions uh, to being the dean at George Washington. Dana is a distinguished scholar of health law whose work has explored extensively how law does race. Her latest book is Just Health, coming out any day now from NY Press. You can pose questions for Dana uh, if you're if you're logged into Twitter through the chat box below this video or um, in the comment box on this Twitter feed. So we know inequality is baked into our society. It's a very hot topic um, right now in all sorts of ways. And it's certainly not new not news that Black Americans tend to live in less healthy places, work less healthy jobs, get less protective health care, and have less wealth insulate them. But the racial disparities in COVID's whole are no less painful or shameful for being predictable. Uh, Dana, we hope you can explain how the law figures into these outcomes, what we can do about it. But first, maybe I could ask you just to explain generally the idea of structural racism, how you see law baking race in and inequality into our system. Give me a bit of an example of, of what those structures look like. What's the way that, that, that law might have shaped that trajectory in your life? Sure. I like to tell people that I lived in the segregated North. Uh, my neighborhood was 90% Black and Hispanic. It didn't get that way by accident. It got that way by law. If you've ever had the opportunity to read uh, Richard Rothstein's very fine book, Color of Law, you know that the federal and state governments were active not only in lending patterns uh, that made my neighborhood segregated, making sure that the covenant uh, that transferred the deed to my house, uh, which included a racial covenant, um, uh, were enforced. Um, so racial segregation started with the residential area that I grew up in and that most of black and brown population live in today. So law was instrumental in creating that residential segregation. It's instrumental in making sure that schools are still segregated, New York City uh, chief amongst them. So uh, my husband went to Bronx High School of Science, about eight or 900 students are admitted each year. Last year, only 12 of those were black. And that is a resegregation that has occurred since our legal systems have dismantled affirmative action, dismantled the ways in which that education and segregation could have been reversed. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth than um, our justice decisions, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Thomas, and others said that the way to stop discriminating is to stop discriminating. Well, the way to stop discriminating is to use equal protection law um, in ways that it was effective for a while, but is no longer effective. Um, so those are two ways in which law has been instrumental in resegregating housing and resegregating education, both important determinants of health and I think uh, important structural reasons why COVID-19 virus is hitting disproportionately. This is a hard story, though. Um, part of its history, you know, Rothstein has made a compelling effort to revive that and say history is still with us. Those neighborhoods are still segregated. Uh, white people who were able to buy a house in Levittown after the war with the veterans loan, you know, left real wealth as those houses appreciated. Black people who were actually chased out of or barred from Levittown had to buy in neighborhoods where there was less appreciation. So that wealth gap today is, is, is a legacy of that. But that's, you know, as the Supreme Court likes to tell us, that's all long ago. Um, I was reading this week um, uh, 
know, a, a comment on the fact that we now have good early evidence that exposure to certain particulate pollutants is a big risk factor for complication of COVID-19. And those are not spread evenly around um, our, our communities. Is environmental racism and environmental justice part of this story? I think it's a, a very important part of the story. And, and before I go to that, let me um, uh, just pause for a second on the notion that <laughs> uh, segregation and racism were long ago. Um, one of the reasons I picked resegregation of schools is because the notion um, that Justice Thomas suggested in, in, in Parents Involved, that resegregation was not happening currently, um, is no longer a problem. It's just empirically incorrect. Um, around the country, the example that I've given of Bronx High School of Science or Stuyvesant School um, is happening all over the United States. The resegregation of schools is one of the most important uh, sequelae, if you will, of the Supreme Court's departure from and uh, walk, walking away from uh, and diluting uh, enforcement of the Equal Protection Clause in order to enforce desegregation in the schools. So that's not a story about the past. Um, one other thing I want to say about that question of the past is this. Um, if you look at, for example, NASA that was used by the homeowners of red line districts um, in most metropolitan areas in the past, and, and look at the areas of city centers that were concentrated, whether you're in Detroit uh, or in, in New Jersey or in New York City, uh, you will see an almost identical coincidence among those redlined districts and the districts that continue to be, uh, but for what we call, sadly, a word I dislike, gentrification, uh, predominantly black and brown today. So the past is not only not dead, it's not even the past with respect to residential segregation. Um, so uh, I, I just want to challenge or push back on the notion that it is the past. But with respect to environmental racism, um, uh, since the uh, United Church of Christ report in 1986 or seven, uh, I think around, around there, uh, we've seen copious evidence of the fact that, again, if you were to draw a map of where the most important uh, health hazard or health harming pollutants are located, across the United States, whether in urban or rural counties, whether they are CAFOs, that is uh, those agricultural waste uh, uh, systems, or they are uh, 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 highway systems that uh, pollute by uh, traffic, uh, interstate highways, or they are power plants, um, or they are other sources of pollution and stressors, they are coincidentally located in neighborhoods that are predominantly black and brown disproportionately. Um, and so I'll take for an example, um, I just moved from Colorado um, recently, uh, three years ago, and there in Colorado, there's an area called uh, north of Denver called um, uh, Swansea, uh, Globesville, and Elvira. Those three zip codes uh, comprise, or those three neighborhoods comprise the least healthy uh, zip code in the state of Colorado. Uh, why is that? Um, there is an interstate highway dissecting that neighborhood north and south. There is an interstate highway uh, dissecting that highway. Uh, that uh, neighborhood going east and west. Uh, the Department of Transportation recently uh, approved a plan to take I-70, the north-south uh, highway, and expand it from six to 20 lanes, um, uh, some of those lanes coming uh, close to an elementary school. That is a neighborhood that has for four generations been a Latinx neighborhood. Um, that is a neighborhood that suffers uh, a Superfund site, uh, a dog food plant, um, uh, 
high concentration of marijuana dispensaries. Uh, it is a dumping ground, uh, basically, for pollution, and it is that for Black uh, and Brown, mostly uh, Latinx families in Denver. It is exemplary, um, but it is not unique. So uh, I would say environmental environmental racism is a very real part of this story. Well, you know, I, of course, I don't. I'm, I'm not contending that, that that any of this is historical, but that is kind of the historical linchpin um, for the Supreme Court. That you know, there were things that were done de jure, um, you know, racism and segregation, and when those were undone, then the clock, you know, ticked for a while for a remedy, and then anything that happens after that is somehow, well, you know, the de facto idea. It's just happening. No one's responsible. So now you've listed a series of things like the siting of polluting industries and the siting of less healthy businesses and the siting of roads and all these other things are that 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 you know demonstrably appear more frequently um, in neighborhoods as those neighborhoods become darker and poorer. But where's the law? Somehow it, it's it's as if the law is not doing this, or if it's doing this, it's not doing it because of race. How do you um, change? And, and even now that the, the Trump administration is peeling back environmental protection, um, but it all looks, you know, they all it's all portrayed, all looks as very you know general applies to everybody. So how do you get race back into the conversation here and back into the legal minds of Supreme Court justice? Uh, the short answer to your question is that you take the Constitution seriously. You take our founding documents seriously. The notion that all men were created equal uh, was anything but true at the time that uh, it was penned in the Declaration of Independence. Um, at the ratification of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, the effort at that point was to make that aspiration a reality, um, and we have not done so. Um, so that's the short answer to your question. It really is quite ironic that the Supreme Court or anyone would take the view that the law has worked. Um, it is, uh, it's almost as though it, because there was a period of time, I would suggest during Reconstruction when the 14th Amendment really meant uh, that states were prohibited from denying equal protection of the laws to uh, people because of race, color, or national origin. And during the civil rights era, when the law really did uh, uh, get uh, the uh, enforcement from the Supreme Court for the short period between perhaps 1954 when Brown was decided and I would say 1976 when uh, Washington v. Davis began the retreat from equality. To the extent that those periods really did represent what I tender the only two periods where we meant what we said and did what we meant with respect to equality. We saw a change in segregation in housing. We saw a change in segregation in schools. And we can't deny that empirically segregation in residential areas has been declining even since those times, but it's been declining at a slower and slower rate and has not had an impact on school segregation, which I contend is one of the most important elements or social determinants of health. So in some ways, the irony is that to the extent that the law works, we retreat. And then when it does not work, we say, oh, the law had nothing to do with it. These are empirically unsupportable positions. Um, so that was the longer answer. I'll conclude by saying uh, all we have to do is look at the data. And the data tell us that as the law changes uh, from taking equality seriously uh, to retreating from a, a, an enforcement of our equal protection clause, so do our social structures. They also deteriorate. It may well be the triumph of legal socialization over experience, but I share your sense that the law can work. And certainly it's an important part of the narrative to say, actually, we did do something about school segregation. You know, Brown worked until we stopped applying. Um, but now we get to the COVID story. Maybe that's this whole thing in a microcosm. Have, how 
have you been reflecting and thinking about, you know, how we make law work right now um, in the COVID response? What can we do today, if anything? I mean, I understand I'm, at, I'm not, you know, we can't change the structure overnight, but do you have thoughts about things that should be going on in law right now to deal with this uh, disproportionate death toll and exposure? I do. In a nutshell, I think there are things that we can do and use law to do in the short term, in the near term, and in the long term. And I'm interested in playing both games, if you will, the short term game and the long game. Um, in the near term, uh, the fact that we are not collecting and dis- de- uh, disseminating COVID pandemic by race, racially stratified, stratified and by, uh, uh, by socioeconomic status uh, should be <laughs> illegal, right? Uh, we should mandate by law uh, that we have data dissemination uh, in every state uh, nationally, um, in every county, so that we can identify the patterns um, and uh, associate those patterns with the kind of discriminatory distribution of the social determinants of health. If you cannot see it, you cannot fix it. So the first thing that we should do most immediately is make sure that the data that are available are verified by available for public health responses um, to this crisis. We also, secondly, in the very near term, have enough data and enough information to show that the most vulnerable populations are those which should be automatically and disproportionately accessed for testing and treatment. The notion that you and I are able to sit at home and work at home and get our groceries delivered um, by people who cannot get tested or predominantly black and brown, do you know that 20% of people who work in grocery delivery, 30% of people who drive buses, um, those essential workers, uh, one of the saddest ironies is nearly 100% of those who are picking the food that we're having delivered so that we can shelter at home are agricultural workers who are undocumented. None of these undocumented workers have access to the stimulus checks. That's something we could change immediately. Uh, They're essential. uh, They are feeding us. uh, They should be paid and they should be tested and they should be protected. So those are some of the things to do in the short term. I want to say that in the long term, uh, I am hopeful that this crisis will be much like the depression in some ways. We did not have social security law until we as a nation recognized our united vulnerability. I think we're at a turning point where we could reset our view of our united vulnerability to discrimination and inequality and structural racism with respect to education, housing, incarceration, food supply. I would like to see law leveraged to address all of these discriminatory structures as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic in the long term. Well, I, I want to thank you very much for that, Dana. I, I feel I'm not even going to uh, diminish that by any comment. I think that's a powerful vision and also practice. And I thank you so much for sharing it with us. And I commend th- those thoughts and, and, and not least the thought. The measure of, uh, of the justice of our response will, in some sense, be the degree to which those people we regard as essential are treated as if they were essential. That's COVID Law Briefing for today. These briefings are produced by Faith Halleck and Bethany Saxon and are archived at the, the Week in Health Law podcast, twihl.com, with thanks to Professor Nicholas Terry, the Hall Reader Professor of Law and Executive Director of the Hall Center for Law and Health at EA University, Robert H. McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. We'll have another briefing tomorrow, same time, same station. And um, in the meantime, wash your hands.